I tell all my students, physics is the right thing to go into if you have a short attention span. <laughs> physics is the easiest subject to study. Mm-hmm. Physicists can spend their life studying an electron. And historians, oh my God, what they have to study, like it's just a mess. <laughs> Welcome to What the If. I am Philip Shane, a documentary filmmaker, science aficionado, science addict, as a consumer. There is treatment for that, if you're feeling your suffering. I don't want it. No, it's not so. (laughs) I'm still on the high side, the high high of science. All right, well, we'll have an intervention if it gets bad. You haven't hit bottom yet. No. (laughs) Exactly. Although today's topic might do it. <laughs> My co-host here, Matthew Stanley from New York University. How are things? Uh, very exciting. The semester has begun. Begun the process of uh, distributing knowledge to my students. Ah, is it a redistribution of knowledge or simply distribution? Uh, it is distribution, so I actually lose it as uh, I teach it. It's redistribution. Um, <laughs> creates some interesting side effects. That's excellent. And I have the gift of, as we were talking, two professors on the line at the same time. We also had other voice you heard was the great Sean Carroll from Theoretical Physicist at Caltech. How are you, sir? Is it also the beginning of your semester? Uh, maybe, you know, I'm uh, actually a research <laughs> professor, so my job is Freedom. not to teach. Yeah. So the students come and go. And for that matter, Caltech, un- unlike many other places, the students are a small perturbation on the entire population, right? I mean, yeah. the vast majority of people at Caltech are not students. So I've been at other universities where suddenly in September, you're like, wow, where did all these people come from? But Caltech, you barely notice. <laughs> I must say Caltech, one of the loveliest campuses. It is. It's surprisingly beautiful. I think that there are uh, wealthy donors who give money with the stipulation that it must be spent on keeping it beautiful. (laughs) Oh, that's not such a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the Disney portion. Could be. (laughs) And you, sir, well, your students are the world. We are your students. You are are really in an exceptional class, and it's a small class, an elite class, elite in the best way possible, of science educators, scientist slash science educator. Well, I think it's important for people like me because the kind of research I do, trying to understand the fundamental nature of reality, is not going to lead to a better smartphone or a cure for malaria or anything like that, right? The only reason to do it is because human beings are curious about reality in the world we live in. And so some fraction of those human beings support the tiny fraction of us who think about reality for a living. And therefore, we it would be crazy to learn things and then not tell anybody. Like the entire payoff <laughs> for the world is that we learn things and then go back and tell people. So I think this is an important part of what we do professionally. That's a nice way to think about it. I like that. That's yeah. very nice. And even just as, as someone who also, who, who I, I feel like I am a passer on of the knowledge. I receive it from educators or museums or documentaries and that kind of thing. It's like once something strikes you, you get to see, you are now visible. You can see something no one else saw before about the universe. 
to not, it's almost like, can you not, I need to tell you about this. Incredible. <laughs> and I think that, uh, I'm a big supporter of a rich ecosystem when it comes to thinking and talking about science. I don't think there's the right way to do it. And I think that podcasts, for example, are a wonderful new entry on the scene. They they sit in this wonderful middle space. There's a lot more richness to a podcast than to an article in a magazine or a blog post. There's less detail than there is in a book-length treatment. So that's exactly right for some people. And of course, the fact that it's audio rather than you have to read it, it gives a whole new way to get things there. So uh, you know, I'm a big believer in some scientists should just stay in the lab and never leave. Others should go out there and give talks. Others should be on Twitter and, and let a thousand flowers bloom. Nice. <laughs> well, now, speaking of, let, let us not deprecate the book-like explanation. Your new book is called Something Deeply Hidden, subtitle, Quantum Worlds and the Emergence of Space-Time. So, and it's, yes, this it just is. came, and it says, by the way, it is a, oh, you are a New York Times bestselling author. I am, yes. The book is not there, at least not that I know of, but it just came out, so it didn't have a chance to be. Hilariously, sure. I can never remember the subtitles to any of my own books, <laughs> yeah. because I'm very invested in the titles, but, you know, the subtitles, you know, you and your agent and your publisher and editor, like, argue over them. So there are many different possibilities, and I can never quite recall which one we settled on. So I'm glad that yeah. you can read out. It's always a little embarrassing for me when people ask me what the book title is. Yeah, no, I have the same problem. I so yeah. I mean, because, I, like you said, I didn't write it, right? My editor. Right. Did. It just is some committee process. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny, similar to in documentaries, the subtitle is like it seems in nonfic in the nonfiction world. I guess we're allowed to have the clever title because we want to grab your attention, so you'll uh, you know take a look at the thing, whether it's book or movie. But then we have to provide this subtitle, which explains it. Whereas you know, Star Wars doesn't come with like an explanation. No. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the subtitle is where like all the actual information is. Uh, that's that's a, a heavy burden because it also has to be short and pithy and catchy. And the breakthrough for something deeply hidden was you notice it says quantum worlds and the emergence of space time. The traditional formulation is many worlds or multiple worlds oh, or yeah. parallel sure. worlds. Mm-hmm. And at, at some point, I said, well, what if we don't use that adjective? What if we just say worlds, quantum worlds, right? And I'm like, oh yeah, that works. That's different. That's that's all right. That that sells it. <laughs> nice. Speaking of many worlds, and speaking of the fact that, as you mentioned, there were many variations of the subtitle, it seems to take us to where we're going, which is uh, both Matt and I had the great privilege, along with, I don't know, like 5,000 other people in New York, however many people were there, <laughs> at the Leonard Nimoy Symphony Space Theater uh, to see you speak uh, and give a wonderful lecture. And you began by saying something I found very comforting, and not something we hear in New York very often. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So tell us, that is, when when your subject here in this book is the many worlds hypothesis, which I think a lot of people have heard. It's surprisingly popular, and wonderfully so. And yet, unlike, for instance, the Big Bang, which everyone has heard of, that's a theory that uh, when it began, when it began to get out there, was controversial, but now is not so much anymore right in the that's public right. but many worlds is but just give us just a quick what it, for those who have no idea what it is or what is your vision of it yeah i mean the big bang within the scientific community is more or less settled something like the big bang happened 
Many Worlds is not like that. Many Worlds is one of the competing ideas for how to understand quantum mechanics. So very briefly, there's quantum mechanics. <laughs> quantum mechanics came about in the first quarter or so of the 20th century as an attempt to understand tiny little things, right? Microscopic particles, electrons and photons and so forth. And there was this constant give and take back and forth. Are these things particles or waves? And the answer that they finally resulted on is they're waves until you look at them, and then they look like particles, okay? So an electron is a wave when it's sitting there in an atom, and it has wave-like properties, and that explains why matter is stable and why chemical reactions happen the way they do. But when you observe an electron in a cloud chamber or a detector of some sort, it leaves a track, just like a particle moving in some direction. And so the weird thing about quantum mechanics is this idea of observation or measurement or looking at things seems to play a fundamental role in the formulation of the theory, as it never did before for any other theory in the history of physics. <laughs> so in the 1950s, Hugh Everett comes along and says, I mean, he's a graduate student. He was not like a big uh, fancy guy at the time. And he said, look, you don't need all of these other rules about measurement and observation. Just erase them. Just get rid of them. And ask yourself with open eyes, what would happen? And of course, the problem was, it seemed that we did see different behavior for electrons when we were looking at them and when we were not. And whatever it said is really, what you're forgetting is that you, the observer, are also quantum mechanical. You're not a big classical thing. You're part of the quantum world. Everything is quantum mechanical. And if quantum mechanics says that something like an electron can be in a superposition of different positions or spins or whatever, then you, the observer, could be in a superposition of having seen the electron here and having seen the electron over there. And in the natural course of things, those superpositions actually come to exist. And so it's not that the electron is all spread out and when you look at it, it snaps into one place. It's that the electron is all spread out and when you look at it, you and the electron become entangled with each other and the world branches into many, many different copies of the world. In each different world, you saw the electron in a different place. So, and, and you had a beautiful thing in, in your talk. You had an app where you connected to... You measured some particles somehow. It was the parallel the universe, universe splitter right? app. It's real. It only is available for iPhone. Sorry about that, Android users. <laughs> what the app does is send a particle, a photon, down what is called a beam splitter. So there's a 50-50 chance that half of the wave function of the particle goes left, half of it goes right, and then you observe it. So ahead of time, you can associate a choice, a decision to that result. I should go to work today if it went left, or I should call in sick if it went right. And if you actually do what the answer comes back to you says, then there's a world in which you went to work and a world in which you stayed in. And the bad right. news is you can never find out what happened in the other worlds. That's what we need to fix, I think. Right, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> we have to figure out some way. That would be so great say, if we could fix it, yes. Well, the important thing here to emphasize is that 
the splitting of the universe is not caused by a decision that you make. I think this is one of the mistakes that people make that, you know, if they're sitting there in bed in the morning, they're kind of grumpy and, you know, they had a long night the night before and they're like, should I go into work? And they finally say, yeah, you know, I should probably get my act together and go into work. They sometimes they might get the impression from a discussion of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics that because they made that decision and it wasn't obvious, there's another world in which they didn't make that decision. But it's not your decision-making that causes the world to branch. It's the observation, the measurement of a quantum mechanical system. So if you use the app to make the decision, then there is a separate world. But if you just sort of think about it for a while and then do what you were going to do, there's not. I've been watching this fabulous show called The Good Place. Of course, oh, yeah. love it. It's a good show. Mm-hmm. There's a number of characters, and one of them in particular is the philosopher, so the super geek character. who's Chidi. Chidi is wonderful. Great actor, great writing, great story. They're all in heaven or hell, or they're somewhere. They've died, and then they all died different ways. Chidi dies because an air conditioner falls on his head. But at one point, Mm -hmm. they say, well, what what if we don't want him to die? We want to let him live for a little bit. Let's go back in time. Someone runs and pushes him out of the way, and he doesn't die. How does that play out in the many worlds situation? He is alive and he is dead. This is a complication, of course, because we're adding time travel to the mix. So, like, only Uh, in this kind of discussion (laughs) can we uh, blasely, you know, add time travel to the whole story. But... uh, if you think that something is going to happen, you know, you see that someone is going to do something terrible and you ask yourself, should I prevent them from doing it or not? You you are pretty well approximated by the rules of classical physics. Like you might have a decision to make that is difficult and you don't know what you're going to make. But secretly, unbeknownst to you, which decision you're going to make is encoded in what's going on in your brain in some subtle way. You really have to to tie that decision to the quantum system in a superposition. There's a joke in my book that is so subtle, I think that no one will get it. So I'll I'll give away, (laughs) I'll give away to you right now. If you look at the copyright page for my book, it says version number. And the version number of the copy I'm holding is, uh, let me see, that's... mm -hmm. 756 trillion, 152 billion, 390 million, 815,553. All right, and I'm checking my copy of that now, too. It should be the same one, otherwise it I'm is the same problem. one. Does that, does that mean we're in the same universe? Exactly. So what I did was I branched the universe in half 50 times. Now, just to be clear, when you read it, there was a mild inaccuracy, unless I have a different one, and I have a different one in a very (laughs) high place. Uh, 756 comma, 132, I think he's at 152, so just, I don't want people to feel like they're going to read theirs and be like, oh! Yeah, that, that's my eyesight, not the universe, right. so uh, <laughs> it's very tiny print here. But the point is, I branched the universe 50 times, so that creates two to the 50th different universes, and I kept track of the random number, like 01101, like a binary 50-digit number, which is about a one quadrillion different uh, possibilities. So, there's a binary number that appears in the middle of the book, and that's different in every branch of the wave function of the universe. So we converted it to decimal and then printed it as a version number on the copyright page. Whoa. Nice. (laughs) So my book has more different textual variations than any other book ever written. 
<laughs> that's one way to shoot right to the top of the New York yeah, Times. Yeah, that's a nice seller. reputation. There's something to be special about. You know, it's not it doesn't make you any money or fame, but it's it's something I can hold on to. That's what but you know, geek geek cleverness points are extremely valuable, more valuable than Bitcoin. And so, okay, we're gonna say now the many worlds thing exists. All right, that's it. I think it does. You know, it's certainly a very respectable formulation of quantum mechanics. There's plenty of people who don't believe it, but you know, it, it's honest and, and a real possibility. And so we say, what the if? And each time an event happens, a new universe is created for each possibility of that event. If you define event as. a quantum mechanical system that's in a superposition become entangled with the outside world, then yes. And by the way, this does happen all the time. Like literally 5,000 times a second in your body, there's the decay of a radioactive nucleus and that branches the wave function of the universe. So it's not rare that the universe branches. It's happening a lot. <laughs> can we contact those other worlds and can we jump into the better ones? No. <laughs> it's really impossible for anything in our part of the universe to influence or be influenced by anything going on in the other parts of the universe. And it's not actually, to be strictly, strictly, strictly true, it's not impossible in principle. It's just super, super, super duper unlikely. It's so unlikely that, you know, the universe could last billions of times its current lifetime and it would be unlikely for it to ever happen. So for all intents and purposes, the worlds are there, but we can't know about it. We can't actually affect them in any way. That's under the assumption that quantum mechanics, as we understand it, is more or less right. So there are ways you can imagine changing quantum mechanics a little bit, right? Modifying. This is what physicists do for a living. Steven Weinberg, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, one of the best physicists alive, you know, sat down and wondered to himself, could we change the Schrodinger equation? This is the central equation of all of quantum physics. Could we modify it a little bit? And he wrote down a way, you know, maybe you can modify it this way. Maybe that would be interesting. And people argued about, you know, how would you test this? What would you see? And Joe Polchinski, who was another physicist, who was a brilliant man, um, pointed out that in this modification, it would allow you to talk to other universes, to other branches of the wave function. And he called it an Everett phone. <laughs> cool. There's other reasons to think this modification of quantum mechanics isn't right, but you can't rule out the possibility entirely. I mean, maybe there is some way to sort of feel or be influenced by the other universes if we can figure it out, but we haven't figured it out yet. Right. Okay, cool. So if we, uh, if we let's say we built ourselves an Everett phone. Yeah. Um, Everett iPhone, because it, it wouldn't be an Android yet. <laughs> iPhone 13, yeah. <laughs> Who do we get to talk to? Who do you get to talk to? You get to talk to a different version of yourself. So Whoa. I talk at, at great length in the book about the notion of the self and personal identity over time in a universe that branches. Uh, happily, the problem has been addressed, uh, more or less correctly, I think, uh, by the philosopher Derek Parfit, um, who passed away a couple years ago. But Parfit thought about, I think that he was inspired by many worlds, but when he wrote about it, he really, <laughs> to bring things down to earth, he just said, well, let's imagine we have a Star Trek teleporter machine. Okay. And uh, it, it 
manufactures or, or uh, it malfunctions in some way so that it makes two copies of you, right? So you walk in, the transporter machine tears you apart atom by atom and reconstructs you. But in this case, it reconstructs two copies of you, which was actually the plot of a Star Trek episode, right? Oh, yeah. And one of the copies always has a beard because it's the evil cop. That's right. <laughs> in, That's actually how I got my beard. I am the copy. <laughs> There's another scientist named Sean Carroll, and he has a beard. And so I just ah, like, I like to tell him it's clear who the evil one is, right? <laughs> but the reality of many worlds would be that you would be exactly identical. You, there would not be a beard in the other universe. The only difference would be the outcome of this quantum mechanical measurement. So what Parfit said is, if you take seriously this idea that there are now two of you, and you want to ask the question, well, which one is really you? Okay, that's the wrong question to ask. There's no such thing as which one is really you. And he says, what do you mean, really you? And he points out that you right now is in some sense different than you a day ago, certainly very different than you 10 years ago, right? There, It's not that you're literally the same. Even some of your atoms are not the same, right? But there's a relationship between you now and you a year ago. There's some psychological continuity, some physical continuity, etc. So he says it's these relationships that really matter. And when you tear yourself apart atom by atom and reconstruct two of you, there's this relationship, it still exists, but now it exists with two people. So it's not that one of them is you and one is not you. They both have every right to say that they're you, even though they are truly separate people. You could talk to them, and it's talking to yourself, who a, a version of yourself who experienced a slightly different world. Wow. wow. And I, I refer cool. our listeners back to, uh, we had Matt's daughters, 14, is that how old they are? That's right. 14-year-old twins Aha. Uh -huh. on the show, talking about what if the world were all twins. Are they identical? They are indeed. This is a, one of the examples I use when people say, like, no, I think that there's only one me spread out through all these universes. I say, look, if you're identical twins, you started as a single fertilized egg, right? right. Mm -hmm. But now you're two people. You're not like, it's not two things that are one person, even if you're identical twins. Exactly, That's what yeah. it's and like. They're really different world. people, right? There's no Exactly, people. right. <laughs> yeah. There's a very specific set of things that happen. You know, there's, again, the Schrodinger equation, this grand equation of quantum mechanics, and Everett, in some sense, says the only things that ever happen are the things that the Schrodinger equation predicts happens. There's plenty of things that never happen. It's not true that everything happens. So, for example, a proton, one of the elementary particles at the center of an atom, will never turn into an electron. Because the proton has a positive charge and the electron has a negative charge and the Schrodinger equation conserves electrical charge, right? Okay. So there's other more subtle things. Momentum is conserved, energy is conserved, and what have you. So there's a whole bunch of things that are just never going to happen, even in many worlds. So even in many worlds, vegans will never enjoy a hot dog? Exactly. That's right. You know, it's I mean, totally forbidden by quantum. An impossible dog could be, you know, oh, possible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> An Everett dog. <laughs> That's right. You know, the, the many dogs. Um, but this is this is uh, it, it. Really, is important because if you think, if you mistakenly think of many worlds as a theory that everything happens, 
then the world in which we live makes no sense. Because the world in which we live has a lot of structure and order to it. It's clear that the world that we experience doesn't look like anything goes and anything happens. And so in many worlds, that's because some things happen a lot more frequently than others. And you know, there's only and some things never happen at all. But within that, in terms of the realm of just sort of ordinary mundane experience. It's not like there is a there is a quite a wide range of possibilities. Is that right? There's a wide range. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. Like one of the things that quantum mechanics says is there's something called quantum tunneling. That if you have a barrier and an object comes to it, usually the object just bounces off, but sometimes it will tunnel through. So when you right. place your coffee cup on a table, there is a chance, very, very tiny, but there's a chance that by mistake it just tunnels right through the table. <laughs> Okay, so Everett says, look, there's a world in which you tunnel through the table. I'm sorry, there's, it's very, very, very unlikely that you will find yourself in that world, but right. these worlds where wacky things happen that don't violate the laws of physics, they're just wacky, those worlds really exist. So if we could call that world, and we yeah. pick up our phone, the we and the, the version of us in the, in, the, in the world where the weird thing just happened. Wacky world, yeah. They're going to be like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> well, exactly. well, it depends if they're a world where they also invented the phone, right? If they invented it last week, then they won't be at all surprised. Right. Oh, I mean, they'll be surprised by this coffee cup that just went right through the table. Oh, yeah, that's certainly true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's always going to be true. This is, this is one of the things that people legitimately worry about when it comes to the many worlds theory, which is how what do we say about the people who find themselves in the wacky worlds where things just seem weird? So when in the book, when I generated that 50-digit binary number, um, for me, I, I counted there were 24 zeros and 26 ones. So that's more or less what you'd expect for a 50-digit random binary number. But somewhere out there, there's a guy who got 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 50 times, right? And so what is he right. thinking right now? Probably he's thinking his random number generator was broken, right? Uh, <laughs> but that person necessarily exists. So it is absolutely a feature of Everettian quantum mechanics that there will be people who get the laws of physics wrong because they live in what we think of as the really, really unlikely universes. Oh, wow. That's distressing. Oh, that explains the world I'm in. That's that's the world I was in in school. <laughs> so you'd say, yes. It provides a little excuse. It's, it's much like Gödel's theorem. Do you know Gödel's theorem? Um, the incompleteness or... The incompleteness theorem, yeah. He's, and one way of saying it is that there are statements in math that are true but are unprovable. And so mathematicians always go through the stage when they're in graduate school or whatever, when they're trying to prove their thesis project, and they go like, what if this is one of the things no! that is true but unprovable? I would never know. You yeah. know? But it never turns out to be the case. It's not really what's going on. <laughs> okay, so now in the, the if propels us forward. The if is unrelenting. Yeah. And like the the uh, cogs in a roller coaster that is ascending uh, up the hill, click, 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 we move forward. So we can contact these other worlds with our Everett right. phone, our e-phone. Yeah. Yep. And um, contacting is one thing. Now that means we could affect things in this other world. What happens there? Yeah, so um, it since we're making up the rules, uh, of course, this is it's always going to be the case that a small amount of influence going back and forth between the worlds is easier to arrange than a large amount. So a phone call is much easier to do than 
traveling there. Uh, uh-huh. But to be strictly careful about it, you know, once you can do one, maybe you can do the other also. Like sending a signal over a phone line is just a matter of degree between that and sending a ferry or a subway uh, or an mm-hmm. Uber. So, but I think that it's perfectly, you know, sensible to say, well, for the first thousand years of the Everett phone technology, it really is just a phone. It's it's not a uh, a travel device. And so, yeah, so in principle, what that means is that the individual worlds are not in what physics parlance we would call a closed system. A closed system is one that you can predict exactly what it will do all by itself without reference to anything in the outside world. And that's usually in the conventional Everettian interpretation of quantum mechanics, that's what the worlds are. They're not influenced by anything else. But now we're saying that the worlds are open systems. They're transferring information back and forth between each other. So there's a whole bunch of different variety of things that could happen in that case. And significant things could happen, If one person knows something that wasn't apparent to the person in the other world, I think that air conditioner up in uh, 10 floors above you is loose. Yeah. (laughs) Don't go there. Exactly. You know, and I think um, I did a podcast. I have my own podcast called Mindscape, and I did an episode with Edward Watts, who is a historian. And we were talking about the fall of the Roman Republic. Everyone talks about the fall of the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire came to be when the Roman Republic fell. The Republic lasted for 500 years. You know, it was very, very successful. But the prequels, it was, it was a mess. It was boring. yeah. I know. They'll, they'll, <laughs> one of the things about his story about the fall of the Roman Republic placed a lot of emphasis on this: these two individual people, the Gracchi brothers. And I, I encourage everyone to listen to the episode or look up the Gracchi brothers. Yeah. They were very influential. And so I asked, you know. Is this kind of secretly the great man or great person theory of history where just a few influential individuals truly changed the shape of history? And isn't that kind of hard to really credit? And he said, what in his opinion, and I thought this is very, very insightful and, and probably right, usually as history is going on, there's really nothing that one person can do. There's millions of people doing things and you can change what you do and the people are going to do what they do. You can nudge them a little bit one way or the other, but it's hard to have a big impact. But there are moments, there are tipping points, right? There are moments when a tiny nudge one way or the other can have an enormous impact on the future. And that's true in history. It's also true for individual people, right? So, I think that in these different worlds where slightly different things happen, you know, again, it's not making a choice, it's observing a quantum event, but a quantum event might be, uh, you know, the wrong signal got sent to the wrong neuron in your brain and you did the wrong thing. So it can easily become a macroscopic difference. Um, The world can quickly diverge very, very strongly. And then it's truly like a science fiction novel where, you know, Kennedy wasn't shot or Hitler was shot or whatever. Uh, These worlds are actually out there. They are like that. And so if we had communication back and forth between the worlds, it might be conceivable that we could find out that it would be better for all of them because we could sort of say, well, if we had made this decision, would things be better or worse and then quickly change them? the, The only footnote there is that the worlds presumably all tick on in time at the same rate. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. it's not like you can see the future, right? right? You can see the present in a slightly different set of pasts, but the future is still something you have to make guesses about. 
All right. So if you had an Everett phone and you were talking to your counterpart, what information would you hope to get? What would be most useful for you? Yeah. Well, it depends on how they became different than me, right? Like, it depends oh. on what did different, right? So that's the problem with the Everett phone is that there are literally a bajillion different universes. There's not just one of them where something went wrong. It's yeah. not like yours. Uh, you have to find the right one. Where so the, yeah. The, so do you just you, do you dial them up one by one until you find the interesting one? That would ah. take a long time. To yeah. Get the right? <laughs> I think that I think that you would need to have some way to pinpoint the moment in the past where you're wondering where did things go differently, mm. and then you know while you're building your Everett phone, uh, one of the technology technology problems that your startup would need to solve is how to locate one of the alternatives where that particular uh, event came out differently. And then you can sort of trace it back to the to the present day and, and talk to the people who were there. I mean, maybe they're busily fighting off Skynet, so they don't want to talk to you right now, but uh, you, might, you might get lucky. Now, what would you, uh, you... You are in... So you're in this place where, let's say it's the day after it was confirmed that the many worlds hypothesis exists, is, is, yeah. is confirmed. Yeah, to the best of our knowledge and best of our evidence. And what do you want to do? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's a great question. You know, I, I do think that if if it were true that we somehow found that you could communicate with or interact with the other universes, in my favorite version of Many Worlds, that, that's not possible. So that implies the existence of this communication, even though there are other worlds, that they provide evidence that other worlds exist, it's also providing evidence that my version of the Schrodinger equation is not right somehow, oh, right? Interesting. That, okay. that something interesting about the fundamental laws of physics is different than what we thought, whether it's Weinberg's theory or somebody else's. So half of the physicists in the world would drop what they were doing and say, well, what is the right version of quantum mechanics that on the one hand predicts other worlds, but on the other hand also lets us talk to them? Um, one of the themes of my book, Something Deeply Hidden, is that physicists have sort of fallen down on the job in the task of trying to understand the foundations of quantum mechanics. Uh, it may be changing a little bit now because quantum computers are becoming interesting and philosophers have made a lot of progress in their own ways. Um, but if you made some discovery like that, other worlds exist, but we can talk to them, then suddenly, I promise you, studying the foundations of quantum mechanics would become a hot topic within the physics community. Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah, it'd be like finding life on Mars. You'd say like, all right, let's go look. Let's go, let's go visit. Yeah, I think it'd even be it'd be one of the few things. just like way beyond that. It'd be, it's, it's truly mind blowing. What, the, what <clears> the, it would be, and and it's interesting to think. You know, it's just just to back up a little bit. Uh, the world, the word multiverse means different things to different people. There's the cosmological multiverse, which is really when you think of it, kind of down to earth. It just says that very, very far away, out in space, there could be huge regions where conditions are different. Maybe they're a little bit different because, you know, the density of matter is different, but maybe they're wildly different in the sense that there's different particles and forces or even it's different than three-dimensional space, right? Mm -hmm. And the cosmological multiverse is that is the idea that space is really a patchwork of all these different possibilities glued together. They're just so far away from each other that they can't talk to each other. And on the one hand, it's down to earth in the sense that they're out there, we just can't get to them, but they're still tangible places. And on the other hand, we don't really know if it's true. Like, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, 50-50. 
Many worlds of quantum mechanics is in some sense more profound than that because it's saying there's literally another copy of reality where things turned out slightly differently and I don't need to go very far away. I made it in my room with my iPhone. Okay. (laughs) But at the same time, I think that it's actually more likely to be true. Personally, I would say there's a 90% chance that that's really going on. I know other people will be much lower than me, but I think that there's a very good chance that that's real. And still, 90% is not anywhere near my confidence in you know, general relativity or Newtonian mechanics or a million other things or the oh. Big Bang, right? I mean, mm-hmm. 90%, there's a plenty of 10% things that happen all the time, as any poker player will tell you. So it's very exciting to contemplate that we will get evidence before too long that says that many worlds is wrong in some interesting way. So, you know, uh, this would be an example of that. And and there's plenty of room out there for mind-bending possibilities. Is there a part of you, every time you say, well, it's impossible, we can't. Is there a part of you that finds that frustrating and you want to i mean it's the difference between sort of engineering perhaps and just yeah physics but is there a part of you that would want to break through is how do you feel when you say well it's impossible here's this absolutely incredible thing but we can't sure see it um like i said no one ever promised us a rose garden right when it comes to (laughs) the laws of physics um for one thing, when I whenever I say impossible, it's always with some background assumptions. Like I say, it's impossible to go faster than the speed of light. Of course, that if relativity is correct, I think it is, but mm-hmm. it may, maybe it's not. So, and no statement about possibility or impossibility is ever set in stone when it comes to the physical world. We, we just do the best we can. The other is, you know, I think that the the most obvious thing that people say is impossible that is frustrating is exactly that traveling faster than the speed of light right like i want to be able to visit the other stars in the galaxy right away like interstellar travel will be hard if it takes hundreds or thousands of years to get there i think that's kind of a blinkered attitude the reason why if it takes a thousand years to go from here to the nearest inhabitable star system the reason why that sounds implausible that we wouldn't actually do it is because the human lifespan is about 100 years or even less, right? But guess what? It's way easier to imagine extending the human lifespan than it is to imagine going faster than the speed of light. Like, that's the laws of physics. Like, biology is easy to muck with, right, compared to the laws of physics. Once our typical human lifespan is a million years, then a thousand-year trip to another star won't seem like that big a deal. Right. And I think that that's very typical for all these impossibility things you might get frustrated by, is that you figure out some other way to get what you want. Yeah, that's hmm. interesting. And if you were immortal, let's say, you could potentially experience all the crazy things. Yeah. Or a lot of true, them, anyway. True immortality is hard. And, I, and by the way, I think that no one would want it. I think that uh, <laughs> another thing that our imagination has a very difficult time wrapping itself around is the importance of the ephemeral nature of life. Like, we would get bored, honestly. (laughs) No one has really done a careful job of imagining what even heaven or hell would be like because we can't help but envision things from the perspective of our very finite selves, right? Like, I want to be able to eat all the pizza and ice cream (laughs) that I want. (laughs) And that sounds good for the next, for the next five or six years, I could totally do that. (laughs) Right. But for the next 60,000 years, 
I would probably get sick of it. Probably get a little tired. Yeah. Yeah. See, if you could call up on the Everett phone, the version of us that did that. There you go. They would I'm be sure like. They would be happy to sacrifice themselves for science. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, Matt, how do you feel? Many worlds exist. What, what feeling do you have inside? Um. Well, I think it would, as a historian, I spend a lot of time thinking about can- counterfactuals and how things might have been different. And I would like to go chat up everybody and see what those points of departures were. Um, because talking to the equivalent me in the universe where Kennedy was not assassinated, very interesting. But I think it might be more interesting to discover um, that something totally trivial completely changed the course of history, right? Um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt stubbed his toe on a Tuesday in 1904, and then the Bull Moose Party won, um, and everything changed, right? I'd love to see that kind of thing. And ultimately, would you say, Sean, that really it is the most insanely trivial, mundane things that are changing history, that like the way... An atom, a way, a quantum event. What would you describe it? The way, yeah, the way the quantum things uh, are observed and therefore become entangled with the outside world, branching the wave function. Uh, Well, I think that there's, you know, I tell all my students, physics is the right thing to go into if you have a short attention span. (laughs) Physics is the easiest subject to study, to be very, very honest, in the sense that the systems that we study by construction, are the simplest possible ones we can look at. You know, Mm -hmm. physicists can spend their life studying an electron. (laughs) And historians, oh my God, what they have to study, like it's just a mess, psychologists, (laughs) sociologists, etc. So I think that what we can safely and confidently say about the behavior of an electron is enormously more than what we can say about the progress of history. So I have no strong opinions about what to say about how things are different in different universes historically. I think that's a wonderful question. I would love to get the data, just like Matt. Mm-hmm. I want to, you know, actually be able to observe what happens in these different universes. We can try to make predictions, but man, I can't even predict who's going to win the presidential election, much less you know, <laughs> right. what things would have been different if something had changed 500 years ago. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, and for all the questions that this now raises in your mind and all the exciting things you want to learn, get Sean Carroll's new book, Something Deeply Hidden, subtitle, Quantum Worlds and the Emergence of Space-Time. I'm glad you know it. Yeah, thanks. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I can refer to it. Uh, and, and volume numbers, <laughs> some gigantic number, yeah. Yeah, that is actually a cooler, that, I'm, I'm going to put that right next to my copy of the, white, the Beatles' White Album. Wow. That has a number oh, nice. as well, That's... although those numbers are unique, theoretically. Uh, they are. But in another world. But uh, those numbers are the same in all the other universes. That's right. And that's right. different. That's there right. You go. And the Beatles didn't break up in that universe. It's <laughs> heaven. <laughs> this, this has been such an honor and a treat and a privilege and super fun to have you. Uh, my Sean pleasure. Today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a great, it's a great thing to talk about. Like usually, I, it's my duty to stick close to what we understand about physics because it's already mind bendy enough. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. nice to let our hair down a little bit and think about some of the wilder implications. Nice. I like that. Yeah. Let her hair down. Yeah. Where can uh, people find you on the internets? 
I am so easily found on the internet. Uh, Google Sean Carroll. I have a website called preposterousuniverse.com. I have uh, the podcast, as I mentioned, called Mindscape, which appears every week. And it's by no means all physics or even mostly physics. I do a wide variety of different topics. And I'm on Twitter and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, and the podcast is fantastic. And I know everyone thank is listening. You, thank you very much. Yeah, everyone who's listening, if you haven't listened to it, you should check it out. Do you have? Uh, are you doing other events coming up? People might see you. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, uh, I'm running around. I have. I, I don't. I'm not going to remember the dates right now. But I have future events coming up in Seattle, Chicago, Cambridge, Mass, New York City. Um, the podcast, of course, comes out every week, and I will also, if all goes well, be on Science Friday uh, on uh, September 27th. Oh, fantastic! Oh wow, terrific! Sci-fi, Matt. How about you? Uh, what's... Uh, let's see here. Yeah, so I'm giving a talk in Philadelphia this Saturday Ooh. and uh, Sunday right here in New York City. Um, it's one through both of them are through One Day University. If you want to come join me, cool. And what's the topic? Uh, what scientists still don't know. Oh, that's good. By the way, there's. I hope they gave you a lot of time. Yeah, <laughs> I know. exactly right. Uh, there's a movie that just came out actually by a colleague, a fellow documentary filmmaker uh, called um, The Most Unknown. I actually saw a screening of it the other night at the Simons uh, Foundation. Um, very interesting. Uh, so look for that too. It's fascinating. You, he follows nine, or you meet nine scientists around the world, each of whom is studying the very, very edge of their field, whether it's biology, oh, right, yeah. physics. Oh, that's a great it's idea. Great. It's really great. Yeah. And, and, and the coolest thing is that each, it, you meet one's, you spend a, time, a chapter with one of the scientists, and they then go and meet the other scientists. Each chapter is one scientist from one field meeting and learning about a scientist from a completely different field. Mm -hmm. It's great. Yeah, that's a great idea. Sean, our fellow ifers, our super ifers, our guests, and those who simply send in ideas that get used for a show, receive in gratitude a finger puppet. Ooh. From the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. Do I get to pick what I get? Uh, you know, I can send you some options. Usually, okay. usually it's I'm the wave function. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you have but they're just, all awesome you've they're, injected they're a new awesome. yeah they're all fantastic all right uh yes yeah, so you can be the first to choose to to observe your observation will determine like to exert my free will my volition here to yeah. affect my future yeah right you think you are anyway right. uh it's actually a demon from the good places <laughs> <laughs> everyone who's listening by the way, you can get a discount from the from philosophersguild.com. If you use the coupon code WTIF, you get 10% off anything on this store. They have hilarious stuff. Now, Sean, if you would just join us as we close out, we have a ritual here where because when we ponder the many, not just many worlds, but the infinite number of ifs that are coming our way, we don't know what we're doing next week, as with most people. <laughs> and so when we concept when we contemplate that we are filled with dread and horror and fear and a little bit of positive anticipation like the ketchup coming out of the bottle like the Carly Simon song and we scream the name of the show very slowly in horror so if you would join us in that I can do that that would be wonderful here we go 
What the is? <laughs> <laughs>